You're listening to the Cannabis Investing Network. Before we begin, a short disclaimer. The full disclaimer follows at the end of this episode. This podcast is a general communication and is being provided for entertainment and information purposes only. It is educational in nature and is not designed to be a recommendation for any specific investment strategy, plan, feature, or other purpose. Please enjoy responsibly. Hello, and welcome back to the Cannabis Investing Network podcast. My name is Abby, and I am joined here today with lucky number seven, the unicorn hunter himself, Mr. Chris Murray. Chris, how are you? Good, good, Abby. I'm doing good. How are you doing? Doing very well, doing very well. You know, a lot of the listeners are probably scratching their heads. Like, what, what, what does lucky number seven mean? And who is this unicorn hunter we have over here? So, uh, so Chris, yeah, you know, share with the listeners a little bit about uh, about yourself. And just, just to preface everything, I'm very excited for this podcast because um, after Chris, after your bio, I think people will see why I'm so stoked for this one. So uh, without further ado, go ahead. Um, well, thank you for the, uh, the unbelievably, um, uh, generous introduction. Um, (laughs) my, uh, my bio is kind of, uh, is an interesting one. I was uh, the seventh employee of, uh, what at the time was Tweed Marijuana Inc. Um, in 2013, I joined the company and, uh, and kind of, uh, didn't know what to expect at that point. Um, and, uh, rode the, rode the, the unicorn, so to speak, uh, until August of 2013. 20, where uh, upon leaving the company, I was actually the longest serving employee at the time. That's very impressive. And the reason that I called you, the, well, also obviously lucky number seven, because you were the seventh employee, but the reason that I called you the unicorn hunter, one really, really, really fascinating part, Chris, uh, that I found from our conversations is that you were the first guy to commercially, I guess, transport, export, whatever you want to call it, cannabis, legally from Canada to US, as well as psychedelic mushrooms, is that not correct? Yeah. So the um, it the the nuances it, we we didn't export the mushrooms from Canada; those came from Jamaica. But uh, oh, okay. the uh, the claim is uh, I was the first person to commercially import both cannabis and uh, psilocybin mushrooms into the United States with two different roles. That's that's epic. That's epic. People always um, ask. Well, whenever we talk about you know like investing people are always asking oh like are there any similarities between psychedelics and cannabis and i always thought people no not really like psychedelics is more um like medicinal biotech play whereas you've got cannabis where it's more cpg commercial and i think i think i'd say you're the link between the two (laughs) i'd say that i'd say that the uh, controlled substance status uh is pretty much it um in terms of you know the the directions that both industries go but there's um, there's a lot more options in the psychedelic space in terms of active compounds than there is, uh, you know, there is plants that produce THC. So a little bit of a different category for sure. Yeah, 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 absolutely. And I mean, <clears throat> you know, we're going to focus more on your, the, the canopy story over here and, you know, we, you and I have chatted quite a bit now and, uh, you know, we'll definitely have you back on for some other things because I think, I think your story needs to be heard by everybody who's investing in cannabis, um, and uh, yeah, like, <laughs> it's what was like your... a tell. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. I mean, like, like, what was your experience like being the seventh employee of Canopy? Because when you joined Canopy, it wasn't even really Canopy at the time. It was just some rinky-dink operation. Yeah, I mean, I, I 
I think the uh, the company was was always uh, always big for the big for the mountain lion from the beginning. Uh, yeah, and yeah. kind of say that in that um, the ambitions were always very big. The uh, the drive was very strong, and the company never really had a view of not trying to drive to be that number one position in the market. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think joining the company, it was 2013. I actually, the transaction to secure the the Hershey Chocolate Factory in Smith Falls had kind of just gone through and Health Canada was starting to look at what were early provisional licenses. So mm-hmm. um, as you recall, very few licenses had been issued until 2014. I believe that the first license that we received at Tweed was actually in October for a, um, a cultivation license. We actually applied for an early license uh, that allowed us to grow and destroy the product with the view that we were going to produce the product for sale. So if we had a small footprint for cultivation, we could start growing those mother plants. Mm-hmm. And then as we built out the larger footprint for actual production, we would be working on that larger that larger license. And what eventually ended up happening is that became the the standard. That's the approach that Health Canada started taking, which is you would, you would get these phased licenses. Whereas mm-hmm. at the beginning, they were actually separate categories, and that's uh, that's something that wasn't really. Uh, it became a, a really great on-ramp approach. And I think they just kind of formalized it after that fact. But um, joining the company in 2013, I, I was, I was, you know, I, I kind of got a email from, um, from, from a, a friend or actually from my brother who had uh, previously worked with uh, uh, Mr. Linton. And uh, it was, it was a very kind of short email. Uh, and it just mm-hmm. said, Hey, Chris, uh, it, you know, I've talked to Bruce and Bruce sends me a quick email and said, Hey, talk to Mark. And Mark's a cool one who uh, not a lot of people uh, know uh, the role that he played as much, I think, because Bruce was very much the, you know, the, the promoter of the company, especially yeah. early on. Uh, but Mark was really very much the, the operations, right? He was very much the, the, as Bruce was, as Bruce was raising and promoting and, and engaging the market, there was somebody that was keeping that engine going. And that was, that was Mark's cool one. Right, right. Because I've always looked at Bruce Linton as somebody who sort of legitimized the cannabis industry, right? When when he stepped into the scene, he was a really big personality. He attracted a lot of capital. He got Canaccord to kind of come in um, and start writing checks. And, um, you know, we, we saw everything sort of uh, exponentially grow with him. And it's, it, you know, Mark was always in the background. I never really even considered him because, uh, and, you know, when, before you came on, I was looking more, more and back, more and more into the story again. And yeah, Mark was the co co CEO, right? Um, yeah, he so, was, a, and he started. So when I joined, it mm-hmm. was the, the structure of the company was very different. So when I when I kind of engaged, I came in to build out the medical operations, uh, build okay. out, you know, kind of examine what the body of evidence was for um, for medical cannabis, and really, you know, take what at the time was a very long document that uh, Health Canada had commissioned, that was a review of all the evidence, and then kind of pull from that, pull from what other evidence was out there and try and make some really easily digestible information for, for doctors, which, which kind of speaks a bit to my, the, my career before and, and a lot of the, the health, healthcare work that I've done in, in, in 
my life and kind of through my consulting work. But um, at the time, it was very much, you know, I came in as the director of uh, medical education and outreach. Um, and Mark was the vice president of outreach and also the chief legal officer or the uh, general counsel, because we didn't have a C-suite type categories at that point. So mm -hmm. very much kind of evolved as the company grew. Um, you know, Mark ended up being the go-to guy for really everything and really was the glue that held all the pieces together. Right. And so, um, yeah, let, let's, you know what, let's go through, let's go through your role. So you joined in 2014, um, the company, this is what, four years before, you know, federal legalization in Canada. So October 17, 2018, cannabis became federally legal here in Canada for recreational use. Um, prior to that, even Canopy was already a publicly traded company. It was dual listed. So it yep. was listed on the Toronto Stock Exchange under the ticker WEED. And then it was also listed on the New York Stock Exchange under CGC, right? And um, we've always talked about uh, the importance of being, you know, big board listed, dual listed. It gets a lot more eyeballs in, in the stock and it gives, Absolutely. Uh, yeah, and it attracts a lot more investors. And so, you know, if you were, if you were trying to invest in cannabis back in 2017, 20, or sorry, back in 2018, um, that was your only chance. That, that, that was yeah. your only choice that you really had was to invest in Canopy. And that's sort of, that attributes to a lot of the growth that that canopy has had, right? Um, yeah, there, there's a lot of there's. It definitely was one of the. It was. It was really the only company that had really kind of successful promotion. Yeah. I think there was a smattering of smaller operators, but uh, at that point, I mean, Bruce had been engaged and in, in promoting the company for uh, years at that point. Right. So it was very clear who the who are we going to go to for comment on legalization in Canada. I mean, I think it's you know, you, you really only had one choice at that point. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And, you know, funny, funny thing about, about that, when cannabis did become legalized in October 17, 2018, apparently this is just, this is on record. I found, I found this on Wikipedia, but mm -hmm. Bruce Linton was the first guy to legally purchase cannabis. Legally sell it. Um, so he, so this is, yeah, this is a really, this is a kind of a neat anecdote. Um, but he, he flew to, we, we, this was a part of a conversation with uh, with you know the Newfoundland government, who is a great partner for for Canopy Growth and and for Tweed, and really was you know wanted to be at the front of uh, of legal cannabis kind of on a national scale. So they were they were open to the idea of us opening the Tweed store because uh, mm -hmm. they allowed for you know vertically integrated operators to have um, points of sale to open the Tweed store at midnight on day one and have that first <laughs> transaction. And since it was Newfoundland, it was 30 minutes ahead of uh, every every other part of North America. So there wasn't really any other option. And Bruce flew down um, and I can't, I'm, I'm, I'm blanking on the gentleman who ended up being the first one to, to, to purchase, but he, Bruce mm -hmm. was the guy behind the counter handing it over. Um, so he definitely was the, was, was some part of that transaction. Yeah, that's that's hilarious. Like that, you you just got to have admiration for a guy like that. Like that's that's promotion, at its you know that's grassroots promotion right there. Absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> um, and so I mean, even with that, um, so if we recall the story of Canopy, you know, there was the boom and the bust. The boom was earlier on, pre legalization, when uh, Canopy Growth, I guess, was really created. Right, that was around uh, when when Tweed and Bedrocan merged. We had Canopy Growth. It was two separate operations. Sorry, it was two operations that joined into one. Tweed mm -hmm. was operating out of the Hershey Chocolate Factory out in Smith Falls, Ontario. And then um, they also had a greenhouse, I think, on Niagara-on-the-Lake as well. 
Yeah, Tweed Farms yeah. out there. Um, and uh, and actually at the time, so yeah, around 2015 was was that transaction, and there was a there's a Bedrocan facility as well in Toronto, which I I don't know if that is still in, in operations. When I was uh, when I was still at Canopy, and certainly can't speak to any of the any of the changes that have happened since then. But um, when I was still there, the 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 intention was actually for that to be taken over by. Um, the more life, uh, you know, Drake collaboration for production, yeah. um, which I recently saw is, is, is no longer proceeding. So I, I couldn't tell you, um, what the bedrock can facility is, but it was a, it was a pretty fascinating space. You know, it was really purpose built. It followed a very specific, uh, European approach to production. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, yeah, it was just a very different, uh, production operation compared to, uh, virtually all other production operations in the Canadian market, to be honest. Yeah. And it's, it's so funny having you back on here talking about purpose-built facilities to European standards. Um, you know, we just don't hear about that anymore. Like, no, it's right. It's like, <laughs> yeah, they, it kind of came in through that channel. And I think, um, I think, you know, when you think about it in the continuum, it's uh, a lot of people forget this in, in the timeline, but the regulated system in Canada, which really was a stable, strong, you know, foundation, a good, threshold for medical access um, although there's certainly you know any number of ways that things could have been uh, softened enlightened uh, the system itself and the stability of it was created by uh, the the conservative government it wasn't created by uh, the the liberal government and that's I think a really interesting one because uh, I think that it was as strict as it was because there's you know it was almost done in, in spite of, uh, <laughs> of wanting to do it in some ways that's so funny I, I, I had no idea. Yeah, it was, no a, it was a Harper Harper government. Uh, I, I I personally think it's it's it would be kind of fun for that to be also kind of one of the first two sentences of uh, Stephen Harper's legacy. <laughs> he actually legalized cannabis, eh? Mm. Yeah. That's too funny. Yeah, yeah, but the uh, but yeah, overall the I mean the system itself uh, and, and and European production it was very much we you know, got as much to the GMP standards. We want to be able to expand the companies. We kind of companies were looking to Europe because that's where a lot of the agritech was. Um, and Holland is, you know, as much as Holland's known for, for vices and, and, uh, an adventure, so to speak, it's also one of the most advanced farming countries on the planet and they grow everything under sea level, which is like mm-hmm. kind of bananas. So, um, yeah, it definitely permeated the whole Canadian system. And so, I mean, with that, like, would you attribute, so that, that was one of the issues that we had with the Canadian system, right? Was that it was, it was, I guess now we know why, it was really built in the medical platform. It was built for European medical platform with export, obviously, in mind. If you're building these purpose-built facilities to achieve the like EU GMP standard, um, that ultimately raises the cost to cultivate. Oh, big time. Yeah. Right? And so we, we kind of saw that. I remember in 2008, 2018, Uh, it would just be really difficult for companies uh, in Canada to be able to compete, right? So I, you know, I, I think that we could, would you, would you say it's safe to say that that was one of the main things that attributed towards, I guess, the, uh, the down, not the downfall, but um, the hurdles or the headwinds that was faced in Canadian cannabis? Yeah, I mean, I think the, I think, I don't think there's like, as a, as a regulatory guy myself, um, I actually don't think there's anything wrong with setting, you know, setting the bar high and asking people yeah. to meet it. I think, 
Um, I think it's good. I think it is something that, as you know, just thinking about the audience we're speaking to today, like the investment community should want to see regulations, right? It's it's a it create it's it's what what leads to the stability of an industry. Um, what I think was what I think was the challenge or how that kind of became a challenge for a lot of operators. And then ultimately it really ended up affecting balance sheets was that the way that the regulations and changes and, and things were rolled out didn't seem to have any rhyme or reason. And they ended up kind of being a feast and famine exercise where you would have, you know, at the, at the outset, it was, everybody was begging for more licenses to come because there was such a demand from, yeah, um, from the medical community. There was wait lists. You would have, you know, like some, some licensed producers were, you know, would take the approach of almost running uh, a, a lot release, like a drop of a, of a Nike shoe for medical patients, right? It would be like, <laughs> you get an email, yeah. you've got 40 minutes to buy as much as you can, and then it's going to be gone for the next, you know, next growth cycle. And so there's a huge, you know, we need more licenses that took a long time. There's a yeah. reason why, you know, everybody in their minds thinks, you know, LPs, well, you've got, you know, Afria, Aurora, Canopy Growth, uh, Tilray, Organogram, um, and a couple others like CanTrust. CanTrust is famous for <laughs> much different reasons, but, um, <laughs> yeah. but those kind of those early players, Metrum being another one, um, which was kind of part of building the bigger Canopy Growth giant. Those those guys were were well known in the space because they weren't issuing new licenses. They didn't mm -hmm. they didn't come for a very long time, and then they just started to kind of trickle. And I think that this like demand and then supply mistiming created this really wild, you know, almost rocking horse situation where you would try and time your production to meet the market demand, and then that timing got completely off kilter because companies started buying massive assets and trying to expand to those assets at the same time as the government decided, okay, well, you know, uh, Canopy, you can have this greenhouse in, um, in, in Delta, British Columbia and, and Aurora, you can build this one outside the Edmonton airport. Mm -hmm. But at the same time as we're going to expand your capacity to meet a, a pretty predictable market demand, we're just going to issue, you know, 40, 50 new licenses. Yeah. You were so we're going to create dilution. a massive amount of product and market floods it. And now you've got a system that like really and truly there's no real way to kind of time it. And, and if I'm perf being perfectly honest, when I look at the landscape in Ontario, the, the dispensary landscape is following the exact <laughs> oh, same man. trajectory as that yeah, without yeah. question. I mean, I've got, I live in suburban Ottawa and there is yeah. like seven dispensaries within five minutes walking distance of my house. There's like no LCBOs, right? It, like, it, that, and that's and that shows you just a, a miscuing of 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 what is you know what what is being put in place on the regulation side and what is you know being asked for from the consumer perspective. So, so what would you do different in the, in that situation? Because you raised up a lot of a lot of great points, right? Obviously, on the cultivation, maybe I would say we should put we should have put a cap on the cultivation cultivation licenses nationally, so then that way you know each license has value. But on the dispensary side, now there's this whole argument that if you recall in October twenty October twenty eighteen, Ontario was only granted twenty five licenses, right? That was yeah. like, that was that was ridiculous. Like, what was I don't know if you know the reason, the rationale behind that was, but like, you know, how would you have done that license? So what's interesting, like at the time, because it was it happened, like Ontario became a bit of a mess because it all happened in the collision of new government change, right? Mm -hmm. It was like that was actually a election issue was are we going to publicly um are we going to publicly uh have you know 
Ontario cannabis stores, or are we going to allow for private retail? And then it became this hybrid, right? Because that's what online is. The reality is, is that the, at least from the last report that I read, I'm sure that they've been re-upped and the, and the timeline's a bit different uh, as a result of COVID, but the years that predate COVID, the Ontario cannabis store was losing money. And really? it, it didn't need to lose money, it, like losing money from inventory and pre-purchases and all this kind of stuff. Oh, that, right. Yeah. And a lot of companies were trying to use to kind of um, hedge <laughs> as it hedged their financials so that the, the the market, you know, didn't catch up to them. And I, I would say that that to some extent pre, pre-selling in inventory early on to kind of make it through the spring before the big financials came out. I think that actually contributed as well to the kind of the big fall of the Canadian cannabis industry. But the... The OCS was, you know, for operations wise or otherwise, was not being wasn't profitable. But you look at other provinces that actually allowed the the licensed producers to sell direct to consumer the way that they had been for the pr- previous four and a half years in the medical mm-hmm. system, and they just take a tax. You know, you're not you're not carrying the cost and load of this distribution. Yeah. So there's, I think there's other ways that it could have been approached with that. But in Ontario, well, in Alberta general, does yeah. that, right? Alberta, yeah. I think, does that. Um, I think it's, uh, I believe. Manitoba Tweed sells directly. There's a Tweed online store. Um, I think, I think Alberta maybe. I think Alberta might allow uh, no because I think Alberta is no vertical. Um, so I think they allow the the uh, the dispensaries to mm-hmm. sell online, but not the licensed producers direct. Which so it's like, kind of makes a little bit more sense. Like, cause I talked to some of these um, dispensary owners down here. Because right, like I don't know, I don't know how you. Uh, you feel about the whole LCBO setup that we have here in Ontario, but it's like, you know, if you want to buy a Heineken, you have to go through LCBO. It's not like Heineken of set up a, a store right yep. next to the LCBO, right? Where, which is what we're seeing here with, with uh, cannabis. Like you can go to an independent dispensary where you can buy whatever product they sell, um, yep. or you can go to like a tweed or sorry, not yep. to tweed, a Tokyo smoke, right? Yep. It's like your high end tweed. So, I mean, I don't know that, that to me, um, I don't know. What are your thoughts on that? It seems to be like, it seems to be the regulations now are more favored towards licensed producers than they are to craft, not to craft cultivation, but towards um, craft dispensaries, right? Yeah. So like the, the Tokyo smokes in Ontario are, are franchisees. So those are, those are actually independently owned. Uh, The licenses are held independently. Some of the other provinces, they aren't, but it is um, the, and the other kind of behind the scenes that not a lot of people, you know, may know uh if they don't know that how the alcohol industry side of things works but like all the cannabis that is held in these dispensaries is sold by the ocs so there's still there's still a pass-through of distribution by the ontario cannabis store and so that creates interesting kind of dynamics because the ocs actually has quite a bit of control over prices if they wanted to um and uh and and really the the truth is like the ocs kind of is 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 coming from a place that is well established to sell alcohol. Well, in in reality, I mean, alcohol has you know some of it. Some of it drives a premium because its shelf life is forever. Yeah. Versus cannabis, which is like literally the exact opposite. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You want it as you know for for the most part, you want it as fresh from you know the point in time where it should be consumed as possible. Right. And that goes for all products. So I think. There's been a lot of product cycling, um, and that's that's certainly had led to. I mean, they used to report this. I don't think they report it anymore, but I can remember they used to report the resting inventories of licensed producers, right. and they would throttle back people's production because 
Canamed, I don't know if you remember Canamed early on, they were they were the first Canadian licensed producer because they actually were prairie plant systems. They were the 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 tender holder to produce Health Canada's cannabis. So they produced one cannabis product for almost a decade. It was twelve and a half percent, and it was you know it was sold as Health Canada's product. That was the option that you had as a patient in the medical system if you didn't want to grow your own. Right. And the early days, Canamed because they'd been around for so long, they had this like almost four you know four thousand kilos of resting inventory, but. The reason why the LP system was created was because the Canamed product to that point was not, you know, was not what medical patients wanted. They wanted more choices. So they were kind of throttling the system early on because there was 4,000 kilos of resting inventory in the company that nobody wanted product from. And <laughs> I kind of see a similar thing in the yeah. way that dispensaries and the way the OCS is kind of holding inventory and not cycling it through. I do think that the advent of this, the craft grow and the hand grown approach to cannabis is absolutely, you know, going to be a uh, game changer for small operators. I think mm -hmm. that's going to really allow mm -hmm. for some wild opportunities. I think it's interesting to see how light, large licensed producers are getting ahead of it and kind of copying what their alcohol counterparts would be in right. like buying up small ones the way that large, large alcohol companies will buy up small craft brews to kind of yeah. consolidate them into something else. But at the same time, I, you know, you could see a, you know, a runaway winner that's a craft producer in the same way that like the Boston beer company, like is, you know, is a, is a force within craft brewing in the United States. Right. So there's right. a ton of, ton of opportunity there, but it's, it's, it was, um, there's so many of those little kind of, you know, those little things that as we were talking, they kind of pop out of my head. I remember, um, that, that medical cannabis kind of shift, uh, where it went from Prairie plant systems, the, the original company, and then into Canamed, they actually had a mailing list of all of the existing medical cannabis patients in Health Canada. And they sent right. out this letter that, you know, a number of people got their hands on that basically said, hey, patient, Canamed is the new Health Canada provider. And it was like this unbelievable access that none of the other producers could get. And everybody was absolutely livid. Um, it didn't seem to, you know, it didn't seem to provide any advantage for them in the long run. But right. um, I remember that coming out. That was absolutely wild as well. That's so funny because, you know, one of the things that we're, we're looking at um, investing today in cannabis, you would look for an advantage like that, right? Especially in, like, if you go down to the States, you're in a limited license state, if you can get access to patients prior to, you know, like if you're in a limited state medical market in terms of adult use, if, you, if you've got that runway to build that brand, like that's tremendous, like that's massive, right? And so it kind of truly became successful as it did. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. Yeah, it's yeah. in that that to me is the biggest, you know, the biggest opportunity that's the least uh, pursued in the entire US market is is the medical, um, medical supply for patients. Yeah, that, that you know, what, we'll, we'll, we'll have to discuss that in another episode. little teaser. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. But going back to what you just dropped there, so you dropped a lot of information there. I would like to talk about. So Canada's obviously been really out of favor. Right, like you know, the extraction story, the LP story was on in 2018, extraction story was on in 2019. Both of them had their booms and busts. The dispensary story, I'm hearing from more and more people um, that where the opportunity, if you want exposure to cannabis, you should be looking. But you and I both see as we walk around our neighborhoods, there's just way too many dispensaries popping up in such close proximities. Um, if you were today, if you were investing, let's just say you had to allocate some sort of your portfolio to Canada, how would you play the Canadian cannabis? 
That's a, that's a good question. Um, I think, you know, I think that the, it, it, like, I'll be, I'll be totally transparent with you. I, I actually currently don't have a position in the Canadian market. Mm-hmm. Um, partly because I'm, I'm actually waiting to see what, what kind of things settle out. We've had just this, you know, blitz of consolidation in the last two months. Right. Um, and I, you know, I'm looking to see at least from, from that perspective, that whole process of, of merging a company and acquiring them and folding them into your operations has not been easy at any point throughout this entire run of cannabis companies. Yeah. So uh, as much as it is a very much a, a land grab for market share, you're very much kind of picking up these, these operators that in some cases are just brands, like they're not yeah. anything beyond a brand, um, to, to essentially you know, consume a piece of that market share to expand your footprint. Um, I think I think it'll be interesting to see what happens there um, over the next I'd say next two quarters we'll get a really good sense of what those those acquisitions look like you know the big big uh, buying spree- sprees at this point at least were Hexo and, and Canopy uh, with some pretty sizable ones so I mean I think that I think that uh, Hexo has been fascinating to me for a long time because I think that Hexo. Um, as a you know, as an operator in general, they they took a different approach to beverages than Canopy, and they they went with a JV with you know a really you know a, a, an established producer of of beverages, and that was with the Trust Molson uh, collaboration, and which is ultimately mm-hmm. why you're seeing them having been able to get at least you know I'm sure through some some convoluted financial structure of licensing and IP and all of that, <laughs> that, that exists in the, you know, so you're not touching the plant. They've managed to get a beverage with THC on the market in Colorado, which is, which is quite, you know, which to me is a, an incredible feat to kind of achieve that. But I think you achieve that by going with an incumbent, which we call it Molson in Canada. Molson mm-hmm. is like the footnote. It is Coors all the way when you're in Colorado. Yeah. And that is, you know, that's a backbone of, of, um, of, of many things within Colorado is, is that, that brewing company and that relationship. And, and, and ultimately there's a lot of relationship between, uh, alcohol producers and, and governments because distribution and, um, and, and, you know, licensing and all those things, those things are affected on a constant basis because alcohol is so heavily taxed by government. Yeah. So there's such an investment in the government relations category. So you look at a juggernaut like Molson Coors and, They've got, you know, they for sure have a very sophisticated operation in Colorado, and and ultimately they're in a position where they've they've broken that glass ceiling or that that threshold of Canadian operator sells THC in beverage form in the United States. That's insane. I had no idea that was going on down there. Do you know what that like drink is called and how they were able to do that? I believe I would look at the like Truss is the T R U S S is the is the kind of the JV that sits at the center of it, and um and I I think. I would look at what they're like, I off the top of my head, I don't know specifically what it is. I just remember <laughs> kind of reading the press release and knowing that kind of engaging Molson was always going to be a, a big on-ramp for them. I right. looked at it with a lot of like skepticism initially because it was a big get, right? Your most of the Canadian operators were sophisticated in cannabis, but as far as trying to merge with a big company that had done, you know, some pretty incredible things and grown you know, internationally and has this recognizable brand and these unbelievable, they're innovating operations, right? Like not just innovating products they're innovating, you know, automation and things like that to merge a cannabis company into that, which is kind of like, you know, a university taking on, you know, a, a, a grade schooler. 
<laughs> it always, there's always a risk of tension, right? Like maybe you don't meet the mark for that. So I, when, right. when they finally got things rolling, it was, it was always going to be fast because that was, the, that was the part, you know, the experience of having done it over and over and over again was always going to, that, that was going to pay off for, for that relationship. So I think that's, you know, that's quite fascinating. I, um, I think the, uh, yeah, that, that would be kind of, I would say that, you know, that that's where I, I kind of keep looking. I think it's, uh, it's interesting, um, kind of how they've approached things in general as a company. I also think it's a little bit, um, at the same time, I roll my eyes at the idea that, that the founders have also like published a book talking about a a billion dollar startup. And the reality is, is like kind of have to be profitable before you really want to talk about those types of things. Um, but nonetheless, I mean, what the company is doing in the landscape is, is quite fascinating to me. Oh, for sure. And, and that's absolutely hilarious. They wrote a book because a billion dollar startup is misleading. A billion dollar valuation is very different than. A yeah. I find that, I find it wild when I, and I, and I guess I missed it when we started yeah. looking in, at things and saying like value is the, is the marker and not, uh, profitability and not those things. Um, yeah. you know, and, and I think that, you know, the, it's so wild to see how much, how much, <laughs> how many write downs there have been in the space, because really like that's, that's value evaporating. That's going the other direction. Yeah. So well, actually it was yeah. funny, that you, funny that you said that because Canopy has, a, has an insane amount of, of write downs, right? <clears throat> yeah. I mean, I just like the reality is I, I, those were things that kind of came periodically um through the last year and i was um you know i i I think my my view was i came up and built things up with you know with 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 the core team over six and a half years um and there was there's certainly transitions of course um that were happening and my my view was i was um i think i'm a little earlier in my career than than uh than mark and bruce and my my lens was this type of change is going to be a learning experience that I will never find elsewhere because it was, you know, it was very much, it was a transition that had such an enormous price tag to it (laughs) that there was going to need to be significant, significant changes to the operation, to the approach, to everything. Um, And, uh, and what's interesting is at the time I actually read the book, um, the what is it called um hard things are hard or the 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 hard part about hard things it's a ben horowitz uh, mm-hmm. uh management book and it's really really is about kind of navigating those challenging moments in a business and 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 reacting to what the company needs and reacting to what the market needs and consumers need and all those things and to me it was a fascinating study because it was i was reading this book from you know one of one of you know the quite successful uh, business coaches and mentors, and uh, you know on the Andreessen Horowitz side of things, and mm-hmm. and it's it's ringing these bells that I'm saying this intuition is telling me I'm not you know maybe I'm not going to jive with the culture as it goes, and and the company definitely is very shareholder focused. <clears throat> um, it's very focused on the balance sheet and profitability of the business, mm-hmm. and I think that that's really really important. Um, I think that the the business itself uh needed to kind of react to where the market was going to go and i think that that shift is something that's um definitely healthy 
I I haven't been in the space like within the companies kind of thing, looking at the sales data and the behavior of consumers for quite some time, uh, just simply because that's, you know, you kind of have to see it from the inside to really see what people are really doing. Um, But I think that the, you know, I think it's, it's a, it's a good strategy to, to try and acquire market share. But I think that there's, 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 um, there's a better, a a different transition that I think is going to happen for large operators and the ones that really settle into operating more like a large alcohol producer. Um, those ones I think will be the most successful. In so Canada, yeah, 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 yeah. And so, so from, you know, so, so in that whole change process, you know, I think I, I learned a ton and I think, you know, you, you find where those moments make a ton of sense. I'm a growth guy. Uh, the best mm-hmm. points for me to get involved is at the beginning or at scale and yeah. where canopy is, has gone is is very much into the you know the efficiency machine and the you know we're we're looking at cost cutting measures and we're focusing on picking the cogs that we're going to make and we're going to produce those cogs as well as we possibly can yeah and That's i mean like look can, yeah can, canopy you always have to give them credibility they they did establish themselves as the unicorn in the cannabis space Absolutely. and they grew really big and they made all the mistakes that you know most most companies will make and uh, one of them, well, I don't, I don't know if this was a mistake or not, but one of them that I wanted to ask you about was the Constellation Brands investment, I guess, right? Yeah. So this Constellation Brands originally announces an investment, they make a small investment, and then they come back a couple of months later and do that sizable $5 billion investment that just catapults, like, not only Canopy, but also Afria, uh, Aurora, and just, like, really, really, really brought a lot of attention to the cannabis space. I mean, what was Canopy like before the Constellation merger or the Constellation investment? And what was Canopy like after? Yeah, I think, so I think it's, it's, it's really interesting to kind of, you know, be on the outside and have a conversation about what the market, the street reaction was to that investment. And also think about it in the context of kind of the, you know, I would say the, the, rise and correction of, of the canopy stock to be as you know as be as be generous um is is it actually internally from the the perspective of you know many people at least that i worked with and and, and we didn't really see that as changing anything day to day and the reason is is really because by that point like you have to put into context by that point bruce had basically established himself as somebody who would raise a dollar with like a blink of an eye, right? Like that the company had settled into a place of confidence in that leadership that capitalization was not going to be an issue. And so when it came through, it was like, holy, that like, that was a big, (laughs) those are big numbers, right? It's like, you rarely see that, especially in an emerging industry. Like that's, that's a big maneuver. Um, But as far as the, the day-to-day approach to things, it didn't change them so much yet. I think that where we got the change was when that amount of money hit kind of the scaling and expansion exercise that was like going to market recreationally. When that happened, it was this, you know, this kind of nuclear tornado of events that, that kind of limited a number of things, including the ability to have really clean lines of sight into different, you know, different areas of the business and what was cycling in and cycling out. There was you, at that point you ramp up. And this is, this is something that I will say is, is, is 
really important to stress, like from my personal experience is the shift from medical to recreational yeah. was, was a massive culture shift within canopy growth. And I think right now the, the a similar culture shift is happening and the culture shift is relative to the scale. And the, and so in the case of, in the case of that ramp up, you had the company needing to, and, and, and somehow successfully hiring hundreds of people. Mm-hmm. And it was like, like the kudos to the, the HR professionals in the company, to the folks that were, you know, writing f- feverish job descriptions that were expanding departments. It was an absolute like wild, wild moment for the company. But taking a step back and looking at it, you realize the company came from such a small nucleus yeah. and every single hire was done. It was done in an offset way. So and when I say that, I'm, you know, this is, this is kind of the marketing or the, the management dynamics of it, but you do in an offset way, you make sure that you're never bringing in more. And I don't say more individuals, but more energy. Cause you can have somebody that is like a lot of energy and just one of right. them is enough for a moment. You don't want to bring too much, any more cultural energy than the company can absorb at the time. And that's, and that allows okay. you to continue to Im- imbue into into people in the company, things like, you know, being responsible with spending, recognizing that, re- remembering the fact that, you know, there, there were plenty of times in 2014 where we were looking at the, we we're looking at the bank account and saying, okay, you know, what are we going to do here? We're going to have to pause on those hires, et cetera, like that kind of culture. And also the part that was really important to the company, the reason why Canopy did take that leadership position, in my, my opinion, more so than any of the, the announcements publicly was, Canopy was the company that had the absolute best customer service team, hands down. That in the drought early on where there wasn't enough product for medical patients, Canopy mm-hmm. was calling other producers and setting people up with, with their, their prescriptions to get product for them. And those people would come back because the view was, this is not coming from this ramp to recreational. Right. Remember at the time, 2013, Justin hadn't that, that, you know, that voice memo hadn't leaked. He hadn't completely adopted the the platform uh, agenda item of of cannabis legalization it yeah. was just medical with like a, oh the libs will do something with it the libs will do that was it that was right. the whole conversation right. trudeau wasn't in office as the prime minister at the time so at at that point you knew that the people that were in this really wanted to be there to push forward medical access for people right and when we shifted to recreational what happened was the connection between and and this is there's like a this is a whole perfect storm, but the connection between the company itself and the people that it was helping, it changed, right? Not to say that com- these companies like, and I'm, this is not focused on, on, on Canopy either. This is industry-wide, hands down. The, the relationship changed because you went from patient to consumer, right? Okay. One, is, one is somebody you're supporting. One is somebody you're trying to convince. There's a very different energy oh, that comes okay. into that conversation and what ends up happening is as you scale up, you bring in a ton of people whose focus is convince, not support. Okay. And the, the, the nucleus that remained in the company is overwhelmed. The culture shifts, right? right? You have that, that happen. And the other kind of unfortunate dimension to the new culture coming in is that the people coming in with this wave of employees, companies agnostic in the cannabis right. industry in Canada, all of them have sat there and watched three years of stock tickers go absolutely bonkers. Right. 
So they're coming in with this, with like, I got a, I got a job at an LP. It is going to be my ticket, right? That yeah. I'm going to get some equity and that's to the moon. That's what people were coming in with. There was an energy of like, I, these it's now it's time to double it down because medical was big, but I got in before rec and now it's going to the moon. Right. And right. that energy shift changes really everything in terms of the customer experience, in terms of how people interact with it. Um, and so that I think was, uh, that was much more of the shift within the company than I think the, the capital injection, to be honest. Really? Wow. That's yeah. what you just kind of walked me through there because I'll be honest, when I looked at Canopy back then, I never ever considered the shift between like medical to rec. I always saw, okay, well, you know, they can do a bit of medical rec is going to be a breeze for them, but I never really looked at patient versus consumer, right? One you're trying to help and one you're trying to convince, which is like great points that you raised. Um, I'm going to digress just, just, just really quickly here because do you, when you're looking at opportunities, I know you're not really invested in it, in it right now, but when you're looking at opportunities in, in cannabis or even in, in any other sector, when you see, you know, when people say that, like, okay, you know, these are trough valuations, we're going to see heightened MA, this is going to occur in the next little bit. Like, you know, I just look at numbers on a screen, right? I don't really go as deep, dive, like, deep down as you just went with, with Canopy. When you're looking at that, like, do you look for cultural fit? Do you look for synergies? And are you like, okay, this is not going to work because, you know. Um, oh, yeah. Yeah, big yeah, time. Without yeah. question. Like, look, the reality is, is that there are throughout the entire kind of MSO landscape, the United States market with cannabis, yeah. the bigger operators, yeah. there it's, they are, you know, there's a buckshot, so to speak, of former Canadian LP folks. And okay. you can kind of scan that horizon and you can see, you know, people that were involved in, in the CanTrust uh, fiasco where yeah. we had, you know, false walls and, and unlicensed product being produced. The reality is, is that the folks that actually resigned over that, they were not even at the company for the events that were actually recalled. And, the, wow. and, 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 but the folks that were, are, I'm fully aware of them operating in, you know, in the U S and it's, those are companies that I wouldn't, I wouldn't look at, but yeah, I would say that you can look at the track record of operators within the Canadian market. And also really like, I think, I think it's, there's, there's something to be said about the points at which people exit and transition. Yeah. Um, I think it's, you know, I think it's really kind of, it's easy to go out when it's like when you're at the bottom, of course, like when things kind of are, are, are falling apart or not going quite well, but it's also, you know, quite, quite easy to step out on the top floor because staying at the top floor, it's, it's, it's challenging to get to the top floor. Staying on the top floor is the hardest thing ever do. Really? Right. Like it's, I mean, it canopy is not the top producer uh, in terms of market share anymore. No. And, yep. and that's, and, and I don't if you go back a year. People wouldn't have thought that go back two years. People would have like thrown you left you out of the room. Yeah. I, I think a year ago, people started seeing it, uh, but two years ago, you're right. 100%. 2018, we were going to be like, Oh, canopy's not going to be the largest. Canopy. Canopy's not going to be high, uh, high percentage or anything like that. I think the only people who are saying that was that farm guys. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, but hold on. So, so, so you mentioned something else over there that was really interesting. Um, so when you're, when you say you track the Canadian operators, right? So you went back and you just said, okay, these are the top Canadian operators in 2018. Who were they? And then you sort of looked at where they ended up. So I mean, specifically, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm thinking specifically about the actual individuals, like the staff. 
Okay, okay. Yeah, so I'm thinking, I'm talking about, you know, who's a VP over here that used to be a director over there. Gotcha, okay. And the, and the reality is, is that, you know, there's, I, I don't think that there's any industry with more recruiters per capita concentrated in it. Um, and so people do like to post their experience, however light or, you know, or, or deep it is, um, in any cannabis operator. And I think that that's something that, um, you know, to some degree or another, I think if you're looking at the landscape, the folks that are, that are coming into the United States are going to come with, um, with similar, you know, similar experience, uh, and and certainly positive accelerating experience for a lot of companies. I'd say more, more of that than anything, but there's also going to be some sleepers, you know, some folks that the folks that left and, you know, they found a new market to, to kind of, you know, perform in. Um, and that's, and that's, I would say if I'm looking at, you know, any kind of recommendation, it would be know your operators. It's, it is, it, it, and I think we've gotten away from that when it comes to the conversation, but like know who's running the companies, you know, get a sense of where they're coming from and, and know that, that, that depth and that talent as opposed to, as opposed to, you know, necessarily focusing on the numbers all the time mm-hmm. um, because those will ebb and flow. And, and the reality is, is the U S market is much bigger for like a multitude of reasons uh, right. that, you know, we can talk about next time, but the, the, the reality is, is that even within that, there's going to be some folks that really show up there that, that are, that are doing a really good job of promotion and that, that people are quite aware of them. But I think that there's, there should be a healthy skepticism in, you know, in, in new promotion or kind of excessive promotion, because right now it's, it really should be kind of, you know, uh, financial to financial right now. The U.S. US market is so strong that you really just, you don't need to, you don't need the noise of a weekly release about, you know, this appointment or that acquisition, or, you know, we'd like to say thank you to these regulators, like just release your financials and whoever's winning that horse race, that it gets back to like actual, you know, profit, right? That's the right. conversation that that really should be in cannabis. And that's the bet that most people made when they invested in LPs in 2014. Right, right, right. Yeah. And, you know, the, the industry has, has uh, matured significantly even the past couple of years. Uh, we always have to say it, it, it's gone from a show me story, right? It's not from a tell me story to a show me story, right? Like, I don't, I don't yeah. care what you say you're going to do anymore. Like, show me what you've done. Exactly, right? and, um, and and just like to reiterate your point on on the U.S., you're 100 percent right. The, yeah, the the market is significantly bigger, and the companies that are coming out on top, uh, it's a very different story than what we saw in 2018, right? Like we're not seeing egregious valuations with high burn rates. We're seeing reasonable valuations with great revenue, with profitability potential in some uh, some circumstances. Yeah, yeah. Um, one thing for you here, because we're, we're coming up to the end of the episode over here, but um, when you left Canopy, like was David, had David Klein sort of taken reign yet? Like, you know, what are your thoughts on him as the, the CEO um, of, uh, of Canopy right now? Like, w- w- did you work with him? So, yeah, I mean, I, 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 so I, I didn't work directly with David. Um, I, mm-hmm. You know, I'll say that I, uh, I, I was part of the organization for, he came in, in December, kind of yeah, 2019, uh, yeah. 2019. and um, and there was you know there's a lot of work done to 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 search for a CEO, and uh, I think that David ended up stepping into position. I think he came to it from from his experience, which was uh, as the former CFO of Constellation Brands. Yeah, and 
it was a it was it's really interesting i think that there's a i mean the the bottom line is there's a very different approach to business for um in canada as there is in the united states like that, that that's a, i think a foundational starting point is right. um is that you know the idea of bringing in change management as external operators you know bringing yeah. in bringing consultants for that process is certainly done in canada but it's not it's not done with kind of the I think the the American capitalist edge, um, which is much much more focused on the um, the balance sheet and and right. ensuring kind of efficiency in that process. And so, I think that like I kind of you know alluded to, there's definitely a culture shift within the company. I think that yeah. the folks that are in strong positions position Canopy exceptionally well to succeed in the United States. I will say that they they have a, a bench strength within the leadership team that is so experienced on the United States side of things yeah. um, that it really is a question of, um, of when they're kind of given the opportunity to, to break loose into that market and expand and, and really deliver. I think that they, um, and it's just a very different culture, right? Like the, the reality is that the, the, the culture that was, was kind of leaving was a culture of, um, of kind of, you know, dreamer, right? Like, it was, a, yeah, like, yeah. It was very, very much like nothing is too big. We can always, we can always reach further. We can always go money. bigger. Yeah. Yeah. And it was, and I think that, I think that, you know, there's, there's some reality, which is absolutely important uh, to, to kind of balance things out that came in uh, with, with the shift in leadership and the dynamic changed um, because you had the one thing that was very, very different in the company because from, you know, from zero to zero to 46, 4,700 and down, you know, correcting back down again. Um, the, the CEOs were part of the company, new people by name were engaged with them day to day. Yeah. And any company that has a leadership shift, if the, it's like, it's like the, it's the fa- owner founder, right? It's that, that idea of like, this is, you know, this is the owner founder. They've been here yeah. since day one. They know everybody to, this person is, is new on the block. And the one thing that, you know, it was certainly the challenge for, for David is coming in and not having the, 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 the social clout of being that owner founder, right. That there is like very much a social clout and a social dynamic within companies that is, that's important to kind of recognize and service and be engaged with. And so I think, um, you know, I think that there's been a lot of transition within the company. Um, There's, I think that they've, my understanding is that that a lot of the when I when I transitioned out, it was I think they were about 65, 70% done the reorg, the change management process. Um, and the last kind of part of the operations was operations facilities, all that. So yeah. um, I believe they are kind of past that through that phase. Um, but I do know that, you know, with any acquisition, there's an op- if you're if you're really balance focused, then you're going to keep the strength of your acquisition. You're going to you know swap seats, so to speak, and you're gonna you right. know you're gonna try and improve the the machine that you have, right? If you got you buy a, you buy a new car and your car is pretty good, but the new car's got four or five parts that you really like that you think those would be better over here. The ones that I have aren't doing what I want them to do. You mm-hmm. see that change? That change ends up happening, and you know you you soup it up, so to speak. Right. So I, I would see the one thing that I, I think from uh, if anybody's looking at Canopy or otherwise in, in the space, um, I think you're just going to see very shrewd business operators 
um, that are very focused on where the opportunities are and pursuing those opportunities as as um, as aggressively as they can. And and it remains complicated because of the U.S. Uh, federal prohibition, right? right? So it still remains its own uh, its own uh, little Rubik's cube to solve. But I think. Um, yeah, there, I mean, I could, I could go on for a while, but I think we'll we'll probably touch base touch base on the on the U.S. side of stuff another time. For sure, for sure, yeah, we'll definitely touch base on the on the U.S. side of stuff on, on, on another time. Uh, it's it was just it's great just hearing your insight on how much the company has changed from even from day one when you left who they are now, um, the cultural shift as well as you know the new CEO sort of taking it. Uh, taking more of a balance sheet approach. I mean, I, I, I haven't really looked at the company too closely lately, but, um, you know, there was a lot of write downs and whatnot that was done for it before. And they have been more balance sheet focused. And, you know, I, I think that um, I would love to see them succeed. You know, I don't want them to be a footnote in the history of cannabis. I think can't be, uh, it's just, it's just awesome what they were able to do to, for the sector. And um, yeah, I mean, just sort of coming back all around um, you know, you've sort of, we're definitely having back on here, but you've sort of, lo- you've sort of evolved from the, uh, the, the cannabis space. Um, and you're, you're looking at a little bit, you're, you're looking at the psychedelic space. Like, are there any other sectors that uh, you find as interesting? Yeah. I mean, I, I leaving Canopy, I, I stepped out and kind of set up, uh, formalize the shop that I'd been kind of working on for a while um, mm-hmm. and and kind of stepped into a bit more of a st- you know, strategic consulting and and government relation focus kind of engagement on that. Um, that was a big kind of thing that I did, as you kind of highlighted at the beginning of the import in the United States. There's a few other things that I worked on. We ended up doing the only, only to my knowledge, the first ever tissue culture transfer um, of cannabis internationally. And it happened to be the longest distance, which was um, from Canada to Australia. And that was part oh, wow. of a three-way partnership that we have with Canopy. But um, in Australia, still uh, is a market that I they stay in touch with. I was I actually moved over there for a little while to to help open things up. So um, yeah, I my kind of my wheelhouse is health healthcare and health tech. And and what's interesting is these kind of exciting new um, innovations, if you will. I mean, mm-hmm. innovation is probably the wrong word because these are these are you know, ancient medicines, um, that have been around for years. And, and some, in, in many cases with cannabis was a formal medicine, part of, you know, the <laughs> part yeah. of apothecaries for, for a time, and then was prohibited, you know, because everybody followed the direction of the United States. So to me, these are, these are healthcare questions, right? This is, right. these are about like cannabis and psychedelics as much as those are two categories that people are looking at saying there's a lot of growth potential here, they're completely different. They're so different. And if you are looking at psychedelics, understand what biotech is. Right. Don't look at it if you don't understand what biotech development is and, and think about what, you know, what that means for an investment because biotech is not a short play. Biotech is in a day trade exercise, right? And that's, and that's, I think you're seeing certainly plenty of volatility in the psychedelic space, but it's not, it's not based on any action or inaction by the, the companies themselves. It's it's very much a kind of forced a forced move, so to speak. Um, I you know I for me it's it's looking at healthcare infrastructure. I think right. that the one thing that COVID has shown us is that even in a country like Canada where we have a massive amount of uh, you know of social supports in our in our healthcare, um, we you know we we still we still struggled. We still struggled and it's really, it's flexibility in that healthcare system. So I, you know, there's one company that's really interesting to me out of Hamilton, Ontario. It's called Faro International. 
they are um, doing some really incredible stuff with modular surgical spaces and ICUs. And I think we're going to see more and more companies looking at that, both from a, um, like in the healthcare space, the transportability and the modular function of, of healthcare is going to expand without question because the cost of building building kind of fixed assets is going through the roof. The cost of producing these types of modular, you know, functions is not is not growing as quickly. And the reality is is that a lot of people look at the, you know, the experience that we've had with COVID and will continue to have for several years ahead of us and 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 kind of look at it and say this is this is it. Once this is over, we'll be through it. As a as a healthcare, you know, expert like this is this is the stuff that i you know I, I think about every day is how can we get people to be a little bit more um understanding with their healthcare literacy and, and really kind of focus on that i think it would be fascinating in schools and things like that but covid's a data point on a trend it's not a standalone right like we've had h1n1 we've had sars we've had mers we've had all these things we've had for it, it we're just we're looking at a a, a plot that is just following a line of best fit and it's hitting, it's hitting the line every time something new happens. So it's not like that once we're done, this it's good. We're going to be good. We're fine. And I think that those innovators, the ones that are expanding out the way that we approach healthcare and supporting each other and respond, like, I mean, I start there and then those companies also have a two pronged opportunity because the modular healthcare companies also have the opportunity to service disaster relief because climate change is going to get worse too. So you've got those two massive opportunities and that's like, that's just the beginning. And I think that you're seeing companies that are focused on kind of building out healthcare and making it more accessible. And I think that that's where, that's where I think some really interesting investment opportunities are going to start emerging. You know what, after you just mentioned this, because uh, you, when you and I were chatting before about investment opportunities in the U.S., you always, always sort of alluded back to, well, you know, I think the medical market is being underlooked and underappreciated. And I've always been like, ah, in my head, in my head I'm like, oh, I wonder why you keep saying that. But now I kind of see the lens of the company. Yeah. Yeah. It's not, it's not going anywhere. And it's, uh, and like, I mean, I'll leave you with this one, one, one piece and we don't need to get too much into the, to the U S um, theory of the case, but we hear a lot of talk in the Canadian system about, you know, trying to get insurance coverage, trying to get insurance coverage, right. In terms of, because if you have a medical access, you've got insurance coverage. Who's the, who's the biggest bill that's being paid every year in the LP system. It's the insurance coverage by veterans affairs. Canada It's through Medivy blue cross. So that's the okay. biggest, that's the big, biggest residual income into the LP system. Um, you know, bar none. And those veterans are benefiting from it, but it really is a, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a insurance contract effectively for any producer that's that's selling these products. Well, if you're pursuing medical access in the United States, the first groups that look at, you know, improving medical access are, are groups like Medicare and Medicaid because they're trying to reduce costs. They also happen to be the largest insurers in the country. So why 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 ignore that that opportunity? Huh. And I'll just leave, I'll I'll leave you with that because I think that there's there's so many so many conversations to be had about it. Jeez, leaving everybody with a cliffhanger here until we're back next time. That's it. Well, Chris, we really appreciate you coming on. Um, great, very insightful discussion as always. Uh, you know, we will have you back on. We'll talk more about the U.S., talk more about what you're doing um, from, a, from a regulation perspective and maybe get your insights a little bit more on federal reform. Um, 
And with that, no, thanks guys so much for listening. As always, if you have any questions, if you want to reach out, if you want to uh, reach out to Chris directly as well, feel free to email us at cinpodcast at gmail.com. We do check the email quite regularly. We'll try to get back to you as soon as we can. Uh, and until next time, guys, thanks so much for listening. Thanks for having me. Awesome. This podcast is a general communication and entertainment being provided for informational purposes only. It is educational in nature and not designed to be a recommendation for any specific investment product, strategy, plan, feature, or other purposes. Any examples used in this podcast are generic, hypothetical, and for entertainment purposes only. None of Cannabis Investing Network or its affiliates are suggesting that the listener or any other person take a specific course of action or any action at all. Communications such as this are not impartial and are provided in connection with advertising and marketing of products and services. Prior to making any investment or financial decisions, an investor should seek individualized advice from, from a personal financial, legal, tax, and other professional advisor that take into account all of the particular facts and circumstances for an investor's own situation. By listening to this communication, you agree with the intended purpose described earlier. Opinions and statements of financial market trends that are based on current market conditions constitute our judgment and are subject to change without notice. We believe the information provided here is reliable, but should not be assumed to be accurate or complete. The views and strategies described may not be suitable for all investors.